It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, February 1st, 2017, and you're listening to future winner of the Oscar for Most Likely to Inspire a Straight-to-Video Documentary, God in Comics. On today's show, Detective Stories. We talk about how the mystery genre has been portrayed in comics through the years and why it's still compelling. So get ready, gumshoes, because we want answers, see? And we're not going anywhere until we get them, see? So give us the facts and nothing but the facts, or we'll pump you full of lead! <clears throat> I mean, uh, that is to say, stay tuned. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michigan. I am the rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And Father Matt Stromberg, uh, not with us at this point. He is on assignment. He's solving a mystery. <laughs> he's, he's solving a mystery. He is, he's actually, he's uh, with Sarah McLaughlin right now, and they are building a mystery, oddly enough. Uh, okay, well, uh, we're going to go right to our recommendation, and Father Kyle, that rests with you, so take it away. Yeah. My recommendation for today is a story that was in the new Justice League series, the new 52 Justice League series, from about issues 40 to issue 50, but it's now available in a two-volume um, trade paperback set known as Justice League The Dark Side War. It's uh, written by Jeff Johns and uh, illustrated primarily by Jason Fabic. It's the story of Darkseid's daughter, Grail, who is half apocalyptian and uh half amazonian so she's got a connection to wonder woman and wonder woman's past and in some senses could be considered wonder woman's half sister uh, but it's the story of grail and her attempts to seek revenge on her father dark side by instigating a war between dark side and the anti-monitor who's responsible for the crisis on infinite earths event dark side possesses the anti-life equation and the anti-monitor wants the anti-life equation to restore himself back to what he once was. The bulk of the book contains the story of how that war takes place, how it's instigated, and the Justice League's attempts to uh, intervene and save the planet from the cataclysm that ensues between these two warring gods. On the other side of it, there's a story of the death and rebirth of Darkseid in DC's current universe and um, some intriguing things that happen there. And all throughout the series, there are storylines that affect the main characters of the Justice League, which actually lead to the DC universe rebirth event. Batman develops the ability by sitting in the... Um, forgot what it was called now by sitting in the the uh that flying chair thing yeah the flying chair <laughs> thing what's it called i don't remember either well he sits in a flying chair thing and uh we'll go with that and he develops the ability to ask any question and receive any answer this opens up the door to the question of who the joker is which uh begins to get some answers at the end of the Dark Side War, continues with a little bit of mystery at the beginning of the DC Rebirth, and uh, is, is an ongoing thing that has still yet to be answered. But we also see some events that trigger the death of Superman, the new 52 Superman, 
and some things that affect Green Lantern. Uh, all in all, it's a fantastic story. I always think Jeff Johns is one of the greatest writers in comic books today, and I think the stuff he's doing with the DC Universe has just been very exciting to me. This Dark Side War series is essential reading before you read The Rebirth because it does help put some things in perspective and develop a sense of continuity between the New 52 universe and where things are going right now for DC. So I would encourage you to go out and get it, read it, then read Rebirth, and then get ready for The Button, the four-part series that's coming out in April between Batman and The Flash, in which they finally encounter The Watchmen and some of the mysteries of the DC universe begin to get unraveled. Is that actually called the button? Yeah. It's because of the button that was hanging on the wall of the Batcave. Interesting. The, the smiley face button with the blood on it. I'm looking forward not, to not that. Not the Benjamin button. That's not a, the Benjamin button. That's a different no. series entirely. Although there is an element of time travel to the button. There um, it is. Much like Benjamin button. Yeah. So it'll be exciting. And talk about a, a mystery. They've put Batman and The Flash in this corner because they're the two greatest detectives of the DC Universe. So they'll be the ones to solve what's been going on. Now we're going to move into our main discussion. And this week's main discussion is on the topic of uh, detectives, mysteries, crime, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that has been, it's, you know, sometimes you can separate these into two genres, murder mystery being one and, and true crime being another, but at least in early comics, it all kind of ran together. It was a, a very prominent type of story, uh, the story of detectives, the story of, of mysteries and murder mysteries, particularly in early comics, kind of disappeared for a while, uh, but has, particularly in the last 15 uh, years, 15, maybe even 20 years, has made a resurgent appearance. So let's start by talking a little bit about where did these detective stories come from? Father Kyle, what, what, what's the origin of early detective stories in comics? Well, it depends on how far you want to trace it back. I mean, certainly I think you could trace it back as far as, as novel form with things like Sherlock Holmes and, you know, the interest in, in mysteries and crime stories that come through novels. But I think that, you know, the earliest kind of comic book connection to crime comics comes in the pulp comic books that are the precursors of, of modern day comic books. You know, a lot of those stories tended to have a graphic crime base to them. And you see characters like the Shadow who are taking on gangsters and uh, crooked politicians and so forth. And I think you see that element, you know, very early on goes right through Batman and Superman. Batman, certainly in the case of the Chemical Crime Syndicate, which is Detective Comics 27, is, um, you know, dealing with the issue of crime. In fact, Detective Comics, uh, for 26 issues, without Batman, was a crime comic book, and it was all about detective stories. And then, you know... It was about shady-looking Asian characters, if the covers of them are are (laughs) to be taken seriously. That's right, that's right. And, uh, of course, Superman, early on, is taking on, before he develops his whole conglomerate of supervillains is taking on crooked politicians and uh, common street thugs and um, 
bank robbers and so forth. So I think that's really where the origin of it develops is through pulp magazines and it gets carried on into the early comic book series. Although that does change somewhat as we move into World War II. And in in the time span of World War II, uh, you see two things happening in comics. One, you see the stories begin to get geared towards superheroes taking on Hitler and the Japanese. And so that becomes one strain of storyline that, that pops up. And then the other thing is that, that the stories begin to take on a little bit more of a fantastical element so that Batman and Superman, you know, start dealing with alien worlds and they start dealing with genies and, uh, you know, all kinds of, of very colorful kid oriented, um, types of, of villains. When world war two comes to an end and the superhero genre starts to trickle off a little bit, that's when we really see the resurgence in crime comics. There becomes an interest in taking on crime comics, but from a different angle than what they had been taken how they had been taken before in the sense that the crime becomes the center of the comic. There was a comic book series that launched that off. The first series, it was uh, Crime Does Not Pay in 1942. The whole storyline of that comic was taking crime from the criminal's perspective and showing uh, how crime does not pay. So it was a very moralistic kind of, of comic book. And that develops from there into various other titles. We certainly see comics like Dick Tracy, which are heavily crime and detective oriented. Uh, and that's the oldest to... one. I mean, Dick Tracy starts, they start the first strips with Dick Tracy in, in syndicated newspapers start in 1931. And that's right. still running. I mean, you can still read Dick Tracy strips. Really? Yeah. I didn't, I still didn't still that. exists even now. Um, I, I don't know if it's the longest running um, strip, but it's it's certainly the longest running of that type, detective story. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, and they go on from there. There's there's plenty of other comics. True, what was it? True crime comics come along later. In fact, kind of connecting to last week's topic, or two weeks ago's topic, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby did a crime comic for a while called headline comics mm. so this is really in the 40s and 50s is where we start to see it take off mm -hmm. yeah I, you know I, I, as i think about this you can kind of chart some of this with just the development of the kind of post-industrial society that we live in right you don't get a lot of true crime stuff before the industrial age which is not because there weren't criminals before the industrial age, right. but the kind of crime, the sort of crime syndicate, mobster kind of uh, stuff, those sort of things develop uh, in a post-industrial age and become the kind of backdrop for, for some of these stories. I, I, I do want to note a couple of details just because I think they're sort of interesting from that very earliest period. First of all, you mentioned Detective Comics, which after issue 27 or shortly after issue 27 becomes dominated by Batman and still is, right? I mean, it's right. Detective Comics ever since has basically just been a, a another Batman book. 
Right. Um, or if you like the original Batman book, Batman itself is another Batman book. But it had been, uh, you know, this series of detective stories beforehand. And, of course, DC itself, one of the two big publishers, what does DC stand for? It stands for Detective Comics. Right. That was their bread and butter. But what I think is sort of interesting about that is uh, one of the one of the origins of you know why did they write these why did they create these detective stories in the first place they had a much better selling series called spicy detective comics which was basically softcore pornography um, and they wanted to expand the market for that. But they couldn't figure out how to get it into grocery stores because people would be, you know, managers and all were concerned about it. And so what they did was to create these other detective stories and basically to say, well, hey, you could sell this to the kids, you know. And the store owners would go, oh, that's great. And then they'd put those out. Those sold reasonably well. And so then the reps would come back to them and say, well, now that that's selling pretty well, maybe you should diversify a little bit. And they had a couple of other lines besides the spicy one. But the spicy one was the one they were really trying to, to get out in more racks. Um, of course, uh, I, I don't know when they stopped doing spicy detective comics. But I just thought that that was an interesting <laughs> little historical tidbit there that is i had actually never heard of that before that's really funny yeah and you know the the covers of some of those are hilarious you know these fraught looking half-clothed women you know being attacked basically (laughs) the other thing is we mentioned the pulp novels of the 20s and 30s and heroes like the shadow but also of course the the burgeoning radio uh, audience and some of those radio shows as well, like The Shadow, uh, like The Green Hornet, kind of inspired uh, the, the the development of this stuff in comic books. There's a lot of reason why these stories would appeal, right? I mean, mystery stories appeal in general because there's something about the way our brains work that we want to figure things out, and so uh-huh. being able to kind of do that is an exciting thing. Um, there's a lot of adventure to them. There's a lot of very satisfying twists that can happen in such stories. But what I think makes, if we want to talk for a minute about, you know, what makes a detective story in comics different, what makes the telling of mystery stories in comics different than in the other mediums, like the pulp novels, like some of these other places, I would say it's a couple of things. And one of them is the serial nature, which is would be true to a certain extent with radio, but particularly with comic strips in newspapers and in comic books, uh, what you have is a steady stream of income from it, because the longer you stretch that out, uh, the answer to the, the mystery, the more issues get purchased. So it's, it's, a, it's a good sort of business avenue. And the flashy heroes, I would say, is the other piece of this. And that's really where comic books start to innovate on this. Um, You know, you had the Shadow, you had the Green Hornet, you had these characters who were kind of flashy in their own way. But uh, what comic books develop is a real superhero genre, you know. Um, And that's what you get to with Superman, that's what you get to with Batman... In a way, that almost starts with the Dick Tracy villains. Uh-huh. I mean, Dick Tracy's not a superhero, 
But the villains are, while not super villains, are kind of funky caricatures. Um, Often they were caricatures of famous people at the time that they were created. Um, You know, like the villain Mumbles is supposed to be a stand-in for Bing Crosby. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So you have all these different characters like that and Flat Top and so forth who are, they're colorful and they're over the top. And you can make them over the top in comics in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do in another medium, right? If it's a movie with live action movie, there's only so far you can go with that. In a book, you can go to a certain extent. But in a comic book, you have drawing that undergirds the whole thing. And particularly you have, you know, once you get into actual books, you have the coloring that adds a whole new, you know, I mean, half of what was appealing about some of these things was just seeing the flashy colors and flashy costumes. So I think that makes a big difference. And I think it made a big difference back then. I think it makes a big difference now. You know, one of my favorite detective mystery stories in comics in in recent times, semi-recent times, we got to go back to 2004 for it, but it's Identity Crisis by Brad Meltzer. Uh-huh. And, you know, this was, I think it was... I can't remember if it was eight parts, 12 parts, something like that, but it was, I think it you was know, eight. eight. Yeah. So it ran over a series of months, but it was this, this story that involved all the characters of the DC universe, much like they do when you have big crossover events like justice league and so on and so forth, but in a very different way. So the, the sort of baseline plot of it was that the wife of elongated man is murdered and they have to find the murderer and as they start to investigate uh, and and try to figure out as some of the heroes try to figure out what's going on they discover a conspiracy in which some of the other heroes have been hiding some very important stuff uh, from each other from themselves in some cases and so it's you know there's just layers upon layers of mystery and if you pulled that book apart and look at it you could tell that whole story without superheroes and it would be an interesting mystery but the fact that it is superheroes make heightens it. It makes it that much different, that much more, because you've got these very colorful characters with all of these powers and all of these things going on, and yet here they are in this very, very human drama. Um, yeah. And so I think that's a, a unique thing about the experience of such stories in comic books. Yeah, and I think you can, I mean, as going back to my recommendation today, you know, that's carrying on right now in the whole DC Rebirth thing is that you have a big mystery going on. And to a certain extent, you could probably do that same thing of swapping out the superheroes um, for just other general characters. And you would be telling a kind of sci-fi story with it, but it would be a sci-fi mystery story. And I think that having these characters we've all come to know and love in the stories definitely heightens the excitement of the mystery. Mm -hmm. Well, and the bringing together of worlds in that case too, because you've suddenly got the watchmen who have never been a part of the proper DC universe. They've always been their own thing off to the side. Now all of a sudden there's some interaction there. And so that's, that's always exciting when you bring worlds together. Yeah. Um, and comics play off of that idea all the time, bringing bringing diverse worlds together. Um, yeah. You know. It, it is interesting, you know, the point you were making about having the char- colorful characters and so forth, like Dick Tracy's villains. That does something 
to the crime stories. If you were to just portray a crime story as a crime story in all of its graphicness, sometimes that could be a little bit too much in your face. Mm-hmm. And yet having these caricature, caricatures that get played out, like, uh, you know, I think of like early Joker or Penguin, um, someone like that. You ha- it lets you have a crime story at the same time that feels a little bit removed from actual crime. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's interesting about what's happening now, so if you look at the kind of resurgence in mystery stories and crime stories that's happening now in comics, you know, I'm not so much talking about in the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe, but in, in other places, it's much more like a true crime and it can be it can be very violent and very dark. Um, yeah. So I would say, like for instance, the master of this is probably Ed Brubaker. He yes. writes these incredible stories, but they are very you know stuff like Fatal and and Criminal um, and and even if if you want a, a slightly more PG thirteen example, something like Gotham Central, which is basically mm-hmm. just a police procedural that happens to take place in Gotham City. All all of those those type of stories. Brubaker's best, I think, by far of these, uh, is is a book called Velvet that just finished within this year, or within la- the last year. Um, it was a, there's a three three volumes of it that are out through uh, through Image, uh, but it was this really interesting story that was set in the 1970s with pieces of it going back to the 1950s, and it's a secret agent story about this this woman who gets who's basically a retired secret agent uh, but gets framed for um framed for a murder she didn't commit and so she has to investigate and find this the kind of dark underbelly of these agencies and but what was really interesting about it i thought was less the story than just the expansiveness of the setting the way that it kind of moved back and forth across the globe uh, the way that it showed this woman at different ages and and did it in a way that was very clearly her at each one of these uh, junctures. And it was able to incorporate in... I, see, I find when I watch stuff like this, you know, if you watch a lot of secret agent type of shows, you know, TV shows, movies, and so forth, they tend to go in one of two directions. Either they become gritty you know, hard-nosed type stuff. And so then, you know, something like Homeland, for instance, would fall Mm -hmm. into that category where it's like, this is just like brutally honest, conspiracy theory-oriented kind of stuff. Or they go in the direction of being more of the sparkle and glitz and some of the almost sci-fi-esque elements that can come into such stories. So that's where you get your James Bond, who has all of the neat gadgets that he can do all this stuff with. The great satirization of that would be the the uh, children's television show Inspector Gadget. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and what Velvet manages to do is actually marry those two. So he's she's got some of this gadget type stuff going on, and yet it never feels like a you know a sort of glitzy silly thing. It always has the the grittier realistic uh, kind of element to it, and I feel like that's a place where comics as a medium help 
Because if I'd seen that and was live action and that was a CGI thing she was using, I don't know that it that you could pull that off. But somehow in right. the kind of uniform artwork of the piece, it works. Right, right. L- let me ask you, Father Kyle, because, of course, we both love Batman, but uh, but everybody knows that uh, you are the foremost authority on Batman um, <laughs> in North America, if not the world. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> you are, well, let me rephrase that. You are the foremost ordained authority on Batman in North America. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, uh, you know, one of the great monikers for Batman is he gets called the world's greatest detective. Yeah. Or the Dark Knight detective. Or the Dark Knight detective. And of course, he has lots of other things that he gets called too, but. How central is that to who Batman is? And and secondarily, do you think that is a, a deserved moniker, the, the world's greatest detective? <laughs> Good questions. I think that, um, well, let me, let me say where that kind of all came from. I think that it is central to his character at his core and at his, in his roots. As I mentioned earlier, you know, Detective Comics 27 was a detective case, the case of the chemical crime syndicate. And so he was solving a murder mystery in that. And if you look at a lot of the early Batman stories in Detective Comics and then moving on into Batman, when Batman comics come around in 1940, you see that most of the stories tend to have some sort of a mystery element to them. There's a crime being committed and there's something that needs to be solved, figured out. That definitely tends to die away a little bit in the wake of World War II and the Comics Code Authority, which we didn't talk about before, but you know that put a big dent in the crime and mystery in detective comics world um, in the 1950s because, of course, people got concerned about the content of those comic books and, and made the claim that those comics were warping the youth of America and so there was an effort, um, you know, on the part of the, the folks at the Comics Code Authority to sanitize comics. And Batman suffers from that. Batman in the 1950s and the early 1960s becomes much more of a colorful, campy, sci-fi superhero. I don't think you could hang that moniker of world's greatest detective on him during that time frame think you could loosely call him a detective because he's always got some you know something that he's figuring out but um i don't think that 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 root element was in his character at that time in the 70s and in the wake of the batman television show with the work that neil adams started doing on batman and dick giordano batman starts to return back to those dark roots that he was created in and you find that his revolving cast of villains start to go away and the cases he starts tackling again are the real life crime stuff murders and robberies and espionage and underhanded affairs Um, that's the kind of stuff he deals with and that's where the dark knight detective title comes back on batman i think it's still there today i think it's there in a different way in batman today batman has become something of a dark adventurer now Mm -hmm. um 
but there are still some comic stories in which Batman is dealing with mysteries to be solved, um, problems to be figured out. So I, I think maybe he doesn't deserve the world's greatest detective title today, <laughs> um, but I still think he is a detective. Yeah, I'll say that. I, I, I agree with you about the, the, the way that it's changed now because you know what's what's missing so if you think about like for instance the the in the Scott Snyder uh, world of Batman you know one of the big mysteries that uh, gets solved in in that um run is uh, the discovery of the court of owls right right and so there's a there's this whole huge huge sprawling storyline about these owls and how they've uh, the owls being sort of these you know, elite people in, in Gotham through the ages and how they've been running the city secretly and all this kind of stuff. So it's a mystery story, but I don't know that you'd really call it a detective story because I feel like what's what would be missing there that that's more present in earlier Batman stories is the elements of detective work that yes. Batman does. The sort of slowly I'm going to... Uh, walk through what I'm doing and how I'm finding, and even in the campy Batman era, this is you know when you when you first get Robin uh, with Batman, one of the uses of Robin as a character is it gives him somebody to explain what he's doing to. Yes. Yep. So you know when you talk about the elements of a of a good detective story or a good mystery story, I mean I think that you know you can have a true crime story that uh, is just, you know, stuff happening. I think a good mystery story has to have, it can have a twist in it, but it has to have some element of clues that you could potentially follow to figure things out. Uh And a good detective story is even more different than that, even more specialized than that, because it has to have a detective figure who is walking through those steps. And that yes. you can kind of watch the wheels turning in their heads as they figure it out and you figure it out along with them. Yes. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I think with regard to Batman, I remember when Tony Daniel took over Detective Comics with the beginning of the New 52 run. I remember thinking to myself at that point that this was about as close to the 1970s Detective Batman that I've seen in a while. He was building some of those mysteries into the story and having Batman walk through the clues mm-hmm. uh, in the way that you're referencing. But you're, you're right. There's not a lot of that kind of thing happening in comics today, at least as in the mainstream ones, certainly not in Batman's world. Yeah. And that's, you know, really, if you're thinking about Batman, what makes Batman great is his ability to deduce things in this it, right. You know, this is why Sherlock Holmes is great, right? Because he can he can deduce things, um, and um, that element really could use a reboot. I think in Batman. I agree. I agree. I think he's gotten over over focused on the gadgets and yeah. uh, and on the the adventure aspect of things and the you know getting the crap beat out of him uh, <laughs> while he tries to beat the crap out of other people, mm-hmm. kind of thing. But yeah. So much of the mystery mystery genre, whether we're talking about it in comics or in other formats, movies, books, and so forth, 
is, a, you know, does swirl around, it certainly swirls around crime. It often swirls around murder. And there is, I think, an ethical and moral question worth asking here, which is, is it right for us to derive entertainment and pleasure from interacting with with stories about something like murder? That's a good question. I think when you look at our world today, we're certainly deriving a lot of entertainment out of that field, right? As, as you've been talking, I've been sitting here thinking a lot about how our television shows are very driven by murder and crime. You know, you think of the million and one CSI shows that are out <laughs> there and NCIS and everything, right? All that's based on crime. And some of it's very mystery-driven and detective-driven and so forth. I think that, and this is just my opinion, I think that, that it can be a source of entertainment, but I think that there can also be a pushing of the bounds of that where it can perhaps be a little too much. And I think in terms of the graphic content of you know what we see, I made mention of this a million and one times now in God and Comics, it seems like. But, you know, the older I get, I think the less tolerance I seem to have for that overly graphic stuff that's out there. And I find some of that stuff a little bit unsettling to my soul, almost, if I consume too much of it. So I think that, you know, we can use that kind of stuff as forms of entertainment but maybe within a reasonable bound, whatever that reasonable bound may be. Maybe it's purely subjective. There are multiple schools of thought on this, right? Because on the one hand, you know, you don't want to be overloaded with violent images. Right. And there are a lot of stories that go over the top with with this kind of thing. On the other hand, though, there is something to be said for portraying the truth of something like murder uh, mm-hmm. for what it is. And so, for instance, the, the mystery writer P.D. James uh, used to was famous for having these very in-depth and clinical descriptions of the body of the victim. Mm-hmm. And when she was asked about this, that was her response. She said that if this is really going to be a mystery surrounding a murder, then we should talk about what a murder looks like. Um, and not try to dress it up. Those who follow me on uh, social media uh, know my great love for Murder, she wrote, uh, which is, <laughs> you know, a, a, a wonderful series of really, really sanitized murders, right? Like, I, I don't have any trouble watching Murder, she wrote with my kids, because there's never any blood, there's never any guts, Um, it's very, you know, people get upset about it for about four seconds and then, then it's just a puzzle to be solved. This is in the, in the world of mystery writing, this is what sometimes is referred to as a cozy mystery. And, you know, on the one hand it's, you know, I like that stuff. I mean, when I'm sick, it's really, I enjoy watching or reading stuff like that because it doesn't offend the senses and it, it is a fun puzzle and it's easy to, to take in. But on the other hand, you know, if you took Murder, She Wrote seriously, there were something like 260 episodes of that show. That means at least 260 people died. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? And you go, um, well, um, you know, how should we take that? 
particularly because I think for Christians, there tends to be a little bit of a double standard about this sort of thing, right? Like we get upset about media that is playing off of certain types of sinful behavior. Uh If it's, you know, something like uh, playing off of sexuality or something because it's too titillating. And yet we don't seem nearly as bothered by titillation that is caused by blood and guts. Yeah, Um, that's a very good point. So why is the one not okay and the other is okay? Right. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question, but that's a very good question. We we have somehow developed a uh, a gradation, you're right, in terms of what's acceptable sin and what's not um, in all of this stuff. Well, and hopefully the Christian would say none of the sin is actually acceptable. Right. But the question is, what is it acceptable for us to take in through our entertainment? You know, I mean, you have to, if a story is going to be interesting, there has to be conflict in it. That's just the way it yeah. is. But at what point do we draw the line between this is conflict to show the world as it is, and this is conflict of a certain kind that's meant to stoke my my passions in some way right i'm using passions in the biblical sense now right like my the 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 desires of the flesh that take us away from communion with god um are the passions and so you know and i don't know i mean i think it's it's hard to it's hard to it's sort of like when you look at something you go well what's the difference between x and pornography what's the difference between this thing here and, and something pornographic and, uh, you know, the famous uh, answer that used to be given is, well, the lighting is different. <laughs> um, you know, I think the real answer is, what is the purpose of whatever it is? You know, mm-hmm. are you showing, is it P.D. James? Are you showing the body in this way so that people understand what murder is actually like? Or are you doing it to kind of elicit a kind of response of, you know, bloodlust uh, yeah. in people? Um, yeah. Are you are you you know are you showing skin because that's part of the storyline or because you know you'll sell more if you do? Yeah, unfortunately, I think it tends to be the latter in our culture today mm-hmm. that that this stuff you know sells more. So you know if you trace this whole thing with the comics back to its origin, we've had what seventy plus years of this kind of stuff being worked out through the comic book medium, right? And over time, it has progressively gotten grittier and grittier. Uh, I think that it's fair to say there was there was definitely blood shown in the early days of the comics, right? Mm-hmm. You would see a guy get shot and there would be a little river of blood coming out of his side. Mm-hmm. But then that got, with the Comics Code Authority stuff, cleaned up so that if somebody got killed, you'd see the body, but you don't see the details. Right. It's sort of left to your imagination, you know, to recognize he's dead and here's how it took place. Um, but then in the 1970s, we've got the return of some showing of blood and mutilation and things like that. And that gets progressively stronger from the oh, 70s yeah. onward. Yeah. Um, and I think what we're seeing within our own culture today is a very similar thing with regard to sex, right? Going back to your kind of division, but there were things that were just taboo. You didn't show, you didn't see you know, is left in the bedroom. But now we're getting exposed to more and more of that stuff. And it makes me wonder, are we going to get to a place where that's as acceptable 
to be shown in all its graphicness, like pornography, you know, in all mm-hmm. its graphicness, is that going to become acceptable in the same way that violence is acceptable? I think we're largely there. Yeah, I think we are. <laughs> I think we are yeah. in some ways. Yeah. I find, and again, this is just me, and this is where, where my own faith informs where I am. I appreciate a good mystery story. I can appreciate a good crime story. I just don't need all the details because I think sometimes the details are just there for sensationalism, to stoke the passions, as you say. I don't find much value in them. Um, I could derive the same sort of pleasure out of a story without those details. The example that comes to my mind is in um, Scott Snyder's Endgame run with Mm, Batman. Yeah. You know, the Joker comes into the Batcave and lops off Alfred's hand. Mm -hmm. Did I need to see that? You know, on one hand, I could get the point that the Joker attacked Alfred. I don't need to see the hand being chopped off and, you know, the gore of it. Yeah, I, we should have had a, a Christian ethicist on as a guest this week, so we could we could ply we those should. sort of questions. But um, yeah, we should have because I failed Christian ethics in my canonical exams. Well, that's that's just that's that's just your Lutheranism. That's all. That's right. <laughs> uh, um, I didn't really. I mean, I. I didn't really fail. Okay. They're going to think everybody who wants to come to my church now is going to be like, well, this guy's not ethical. I'm That's not right. going there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, maybe you all out there in internet land can help us sort out the moral quandaries that have to do with this sort of thing. Uh, in any event, I hope that many of you who uh, have enjoyed various types of Uh, detective stories mystery stories true crime stories and comics or otherwise will uh, interact with us through social media you can find us on facebook facebook.com slash god and comics or you can tweet at us we are on twitter at god and comics but for now we're going to move into uh, solving the mystery of our final segment this week this or that this or that this or that come on everybody let's this or that Batman or Iron Man? This or that. Spider-Man or Superman? This or that. Boxes or briefs? This or that. DVD or VHS? This or that. Dungeons or Dragons? This and that. Moses or Elijah? This or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. Okay, well, Father Kyle, so it's just you and me this week, which means you get all of the this or that questions asked to you. So I you I hope you are up to the challenge. And uh, I've been, I just warn you in advance that I've been watching a lot of Star Trek recently um, and reading a lot of Star Trek. So I hope that you've spent a significant portion of your life interacting with Star Trek or else these are not going to make any sense. Uh, They'll probably, some will, but some won't. (laughs) Well, Well, we'll see what happens. All right, fire away. Okay. Danger Mouse or Darkwing Duck? I'm going to say Darkwing Duck. And I say that purely because Darkwing Duck has some uh, basis. He's based upon Batman. I can clearly see that. (laughs) Okay. You do realize, though, that Danger Mouse uh, is the world's greatest secret agent. I do realize that. There is that. There is that. I'm just going to assume that you chose that way because you hate the British. And we'll just go from there. (laughs) Not in the least. Not in the least. 
I'm wearing British boots right now. How about that? And um, I'm an Anglican clergyman. That's, well, <laughs> that's a good point. All right, here's the second one. The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller or The Dark Knight of the Soul by St. John of the Cross? Well, I'll confess that I have never read A Dark Knight of the Soul, although I am familiar with it. I will have to say The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. I That is one of the comic books that I have read multiple times and still enjoy today. But I'll have to read A Dark Knight of the Soul. Okay. So far, if you all are keeping score at home, Father Kyle is 0 for 2. That's <laughs> 0 for that. 2. <laughs> Dick Tracy or the Green Hornet? Ooh, that's a tough one. In this instance, I'm going to say Dick Tracy. And I'm going to say Dick Tracy because I do love his, his cast of villains. And uh, I sort of love that 1930s thing that he's got going on. Well, the Green Hornet was around then too. I, you know, yeah. it's 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 a hard one. I would say if I had to, I would say I'd like to put together the Green Hornet with the villains from Dick Tracy. Uh, I feel yeah. like that would be the best of both worlds, you know. Yeah, because um, Green Hornet doesn't seem to have a big cast of villains. Well, but you know the the weird because you got to remember the funny thing with Green Hornet is Green Hornet is posing as a villain to catch right. Villains. That's right. So. Can you just imagine the stories where he poses as one of the gang with flat top and, you know, all of the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> crazy Dick Tracy uh, uh, villains? That would be amazing. Would I, be. I wonder if that's ever happened. If it, if not, it should. Yeah. I don't know who owns the rights to all that stuff now, but um, Dynamite, DC, you guys do all those other crossovers. You should do Dick Tracy meets the Green Hornet. Yeah, who does have Dick Tracy? Dynamite certainly has Green Hornet. Well, that's uh, that's a good question. I think, I mean, I, DC has published some Dick Tracy stuff, but then again, Dick Tracy is also still running syndicated in um, in newspapers. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Warren Beatty owns it. There is, by the way, um, you know, the 1990 Dick Tracy movie, which I remember seeing in the theater as a kid. Yeah. Um, has this wonderful soundtrack full, full of faux 30s and 40s songs and randomly a song by Ice-T. <laughs> Don't know how that happened. Love Ice-T. Not quite sure that it fits really with the rest of it. But And he tries to make it sound old too and it doesn't anyway. That's funny. You know. Okay, this one's really important. Okay. Okay. Two great detectives being pitched against each other here. Jessica Fletcher or Columbo? I'm going to go with Columbo. I love Columbo. That was a great television show. And Peter Falk was, uh, he was, he was just a fun actor. That is uh, by far the worst answer that you have given today. <laughs> Come on, Jessica, Jessica Fletcher. Fletcher? She's amazing. Well, she is, but... I gotta give props to uh, Columbo. I, besides which, Peter Falk's greatest role was obviously as the grandfather in um, uh, *The Princess Bride*. I mean, that's his that's his shining achievement. He was very good in that. He was also extremely good in uh, in the movie *Made* with Vince Vaughn and um, and uh, uh, gosh, why my brain's gone from me. Vince Vaughn's buddy, you know who I'm talking about, who's in every movie that Vince Vaughn 
was in. I don't know. Now I can't think of him, but it's a good movie. Check it out. He plays okay. a uh, he plays a good role in that movie. I'll uh, I'll add it to the list. Okay. Next one, Captain Crunch, or nuclear disarmament. <laughs> wow. Um, now weigh the options carefully. Yes, I guess I'll have to go for uh, Captain Crunch on that one. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Because I knew it was going to be the opposite answer of what you think. <laughs> I mean, Captain Crunch is sweet and delicious. <laughs> But nuclear disarmament, need I remind you, is nuclear disarmament. <laughs> well, I figure I would take one last taste of Captain Crunch before the nuclear holocaust. <laughs> because since it's so artificial, I don't believe our Lord will have it in the new creation. <laughs> mm. Well, uh, you know what's great about nuclear disarmament is after it happens, the milk tastes just like the nuclear weapons. Oh, that so, sounds delicious. Nice. Okay, here's your first Star Trek one. Nurse Chapel from the original Star Trek series, Nurse Christine Chapel, or Roxana Troy, the mother of Deanna Troy in Star Trek The Next Generation. Nurse Chapel or Roxana Troy? And this is where my knowledge of Star <laughs> Trek fails me. I have no idea. I will say Nurse Chapel. That was a 50-50 toss in my head. You know, and uh, I, I'm going to give it to you. It's a little bit of a trick question. Uh, both characters played by the same actress, Majel Barrett, who was actually the wife of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. Uh, oh. So she played uh, Nurse Chapel in the old Star Trek series, and in the next generation she played Roxana Troy. Both, both, I think, great characters. Uh, Roxana Troy probably a little, certainly more developed than uh, Nurse yeah. Chapel was. Um, well, that's because there but, were more episodes of Next Generation, right? Well, that and uh, um, it wasn't quite as uh, overtly sexist as the original series had been. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, rewatching some of the original series recently, and I and I'm looking, and I love it. You know, I grew up with it, yeah. and it's you know showing this uto utopian future world where all the races are together and everything, and yet they're still like, well. You know, we've got some women officers here until they get married and leave the service. And, uh, uh, you know, why don't you get me some dinner, honey? And they've all got the short skirts. And you're like, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, other other interesting tidbit, uh, Majel Barrett also is the voice of the computer on Star Trek The Next Generation. And <laughs> and in a number of the films. So she there you go. She has a double role there, huh? There you go, yeah. Well, this kills my hope for a, an, an episode of God and Comics all about Star Trek comics. <laughs> well, we could still do it. Yeah. I just have to bone up on it. That's yeah. all. Okay. All right. Next one is uh, a little trickier. Mr. Belvedere or Mr. T? I actually really like both of them. I, I <laughs> thoroughly enjoy the A-Team, and I loved Mr. Belvedere when it was on. I'm going to give it in this circumstance to Mr. Belvedere. Okay. To just show that I do not hate Brits. Well, I pity the fool. I pity the fool. <laughs> Did you ever watch, or were you too old for this, the uh, Mr. T Saturday morning cartoon? I do remember it, yeah, yeah. I used to love that when I was a kid. Yeah. It was like him and a gang of children 
uh, teenagers or something going around stopping people from doing drugs was basically right. pretty much every plot line for it. Um, it was a, it was all in conjunction with Nancy Reagan's uh, "Just Say No" that's right. policy, and he was the spokesman for that. He was. There's that great picture somewhere of her sitting on his lap. Yeah, and of course, Mr. T also did a, a hip hop album in the mid '80s called mm-hmm. Mis- "Mr. T's Commandments." Um, you see the you got to go check out the one on mothers. Oh the yeah, song that he has the video <laughs> too. Maybe uh, we'll maybe we'll uh, post that. That'll be nice. Okay. <laughs> This next one, um, actually the next couple are going to be kind of uh, picking between uh, things that aren't so good. So here's the next one. Girls with their hair long on top and shaved on the sides. Okay. Or Brussels sprouts. Oh, well, clearly Brussels sprouts. I actually love Brussels sprouts. Do you really? I, I do not like girls with their hair long on top and shaved on the side. So uh, Brussels sprouts are disgusting. You're wrong about that. Just no, the, just the smell of Brussels sprouts that. makes me want to retch. But uh, I will say this: there was really no right answer to that one because both of those things are terrible. So um, <laughs> I won't I won't deduct any points from your score for that one. All right, all right, okay. And if you come to visit me now, I know what room you'll stay in. You'll stay in my daughter's room because when my wife cooks Brussels sprouts, my daughter's room, which is right above the kitchen, unfortunately ends up smelling like Brussels sprouts for weeks. Ah. And I feel bad for her about that. But so you, you in that basically room. you want me to puke on your floor is what you're saying. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Okay. Baptism during Lent or a funeral on Sunday? Well, I guess if I had to choose, I would take a baptism during Lent because worst case scenario, there's another saint being made, another sinner being redeemed. Mm -hmm. And I would much rather see that than have to see a funeral on a Sunday. Okay, last one. This one will be a little easier for you. The, uh, The Geneva Conventions or Star Trek Conventions. I'll say Star Trek Conventions. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think a Star Trek convention would be more enjoyable. Well, um, I don't know that it would protect you from torture, but... uh, Well, that's okay. But that may very well be the case, so... Okay. Well, on that note, that will do it for this episode of God and Comics. If you want to check out some links to some of the rad stuff we talked about today and listen to the show again, you can check out our show page on God and Comics. God and Comics is subscribable through iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, I I sure hope you'll give us a rating and maybe even a review. It would be really helpful. It helps people to find the show. And uh, uh, you'll win brownie points uh, in heaven, I'm pretty sure. Well, maybe not. But it would be a really nice thing, and we we would very much appreciate it if you did it. Our theme music, which you're hopefully banging your head to right now, is by Father Paul Wheatley, whose own great detective skills allowed him once to find the body of Jimmy Hoffa, but then he saw a shiny object and forgot where he had put it. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. And we'll see you.